in the middle of a series entitled The Letter to the Romans. I'm going to share the second and final talk on the letter to Romans entitled In Conclusion. Patty's like, what is that all about? <laughs> so my, the title of my message is In Conclusion, and hopefully that will make sense in just a second. I'd like to tell you a story of one of the best examples of leadership that I've experienced in, in my life that I have loved. It's been one of my favorite stories. I got to participate with it, got to take video and all that kind of stuff. And it's just been an uh, incredible journey. For those of you who know a little bit about my background and some of the things that I've been studying, I have a uh, passion and, and a, just an intense curiosity about organizational design, development, uh, behavioral sciences, uh, all those kinds of things, and leadership, of course, being a preeminent uh, piece of that puzzle. And so when this story came about in my life, it was just one of those things I, I was like, it was like gold. And it involves our beloved Kendra Randolph, who was uh, back in, believe it or not, 2013 when I looked this up. So um, this was uh, several years ago now, where she became the head coach of the King's Academy soccer team. Now, for those of you who don't know this uh, team or this school, correct. You don't know them. Uh, You would be on the logical end of things. This is not a school that necessarily, I mean, they do really good athletics and really do good sports, and I've been very grateful for the high levels of professionalism. But when it came to women's soccer, they were nowhere near uh, noticeable at, at any particular point. So Kendra becomes the head coach, and she tells me this story. So I might be getting some of these details a little bit um, uh, fabricated or a little bit legendary because that's just kind of how I'm going to tell the story. But So check in with her for the final details, the absolute details of this. But she sits down very first day or, or very early on in meeting all the girls that had previously like, okay, I'm going to sign up for a sport, might as well choose soccer. And one of the first meetings that I remember her telling us, uh, telling the team, and then I got to hear the story later, is she sat down with them with a calendar. And the calendar had on it the CCS championship schedule at the very end of the season. So you're going to go through regular season, but then you got to add additional dates. Here are the dates for the playoff games and the date for the final game. And you need to make sure that you block off all of these dates. Now, I wasn't there, but I can imagine this very unknown, I'm just signing up for a, a, a sport kind of team, a uh, group of high schoolers going, why are you showing us this? This makes no sense. Number one, uh, I'm just here to you know, get some credits or whatever. Number two, we are nowhere near close to getting to that particular level. Nonetheless, that is the meeting. And as a result of describing the schedule at the CCS championship, the playoffs and the final game, you are required to be on this team and make sure that those dates, and if you cannot block off those dates, you cannot play on this team, or at least there's going to be some severe consequences. And I, I just remember feeling, this is insane. What are you doing? Why are you being so, what, what's that all about? Well, It turned out to be one of the most fantastic stories and lessons that I have taken with me that I'm telling you, I mean, this is 10 years ago now. And what happened is as the season began to progress, they started to realize that, wait a second, the reason why coach is having us do this, 
the reason why this exercise is important, the reason why this extra practice is important, the reason why we're having to arrange and organize ourselves in this way, the reason why we're calling out these special plays and all this kind of stuff is because at the very beginning of the season, we were required to get ready for the championship game. That was the goal. That was the end. And that's where we are heading. And so as a result of that, everything else was contextualized and made sense because that is where we're headed. And if you did not previously do that, well then, hey, if you show up, okay, if you're late, that's fine. Uh, if you miss a practice, okay, no big deal. Well, we'll just swap you in and out. The way in which you run the season, the way in which you coach, the way in which you lead a group of youngsters towards a game, towards a championship, is contingent upon what's your end game? What's your goal? Well, believe it or not, this 13th seed out of 13 teams <laughs> ended up making it to the final game. And three minutes in to the final game, this happens. And we've got a scramble for it. Ball still loose in front of the goal. Ellie, excuse me, shot. It's in the goal! Go! Come on! Go! Danielle Allen with the goal for the Knights, and King's Academy is on board first. Not even four minutes in. <laughs> That's the, okay. Somebody. So, 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 th thank you, Telemundo. Appreciate that. So that's three minutes into the final game. Danielle Allen scores a goal in the CCS championship game, blowing everybody's mind. And the question, of course, is are they going to be able to hold on to that lead? This is the final game. They are the 13th seed. They are in complete last place when it comes to ranking. Nobody is ever going to expect them to even get this far. Can they maintain it? The question I want to ask and address, and the principle that I think applies to our reading of this text, which is the last letter that Paul writes, and a principle that I think applies to every single one of us, is how in the world did Kendra get this team to get to that particular place in their season? Well, there's a couple reasons. They had a strategic plan, clearly. Uh, a very good coach knows takes uh, an assessment of the team, figures out what they need to do, practices, uh, rehearsals, et cetera, and then works out how we need to get there. They clearly worked hard. There was a lot of discipline involved. Uh, there was clearly some talent. There was actual talent on the team as well as in the coaching staff. But all of these things, how you address the strategic plan, how you discipline yourself, how you even manage the talent that you have in your team is contingent upon this one thing that Kendra did at the very beginning, which is what is your end game? What is your vision? What's the thing that you are striving for? What is your ultimate goal? And here's the principle for today. It's very simple, and I don't think I'm telling any of you anything you don't already know based upon the principle that people need to be reminded much more than they need to be told. Your end determines you're now. What your goals are, what your vision is, what you think the ultimate achievement is determines the pathway in which you get there and informs and contextualizes every single step along the way. Helps you make sense of why this, why that, why is this necessary. In theological terms, we call this eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. Eschatology. 
which for years I thought meant scatology, but that's a different word. It's eschatology. Of course, from the word eschatos, which means last or final. Now, if you've been around Spark for a while, I know we have a couple people who have just recently found us. Thank you so much for being here. We hope that you find a wonderful home and family here. We have talked extensively over the years about this term with this term above it, inaugurated eschatology. The idea behind inaugurated eschatology, which sounds super fancy, is really the idea that whatever Christians believe about the end is actually happening now. So if you believe that heaven and earth come together in a unified, glorious reality, then what that reality at the very end is actually happening now. It's inaugurated. It has begun. It's not quite there yet, but that's why we do justice and mercy and compassion. That's why we break down the barriers of sexism and racism and classism. It's why you fight those things, because, because in your mind, the end is when none of those things exist. That's why you fight against poverty and suffering and pain and all, the, and all those things. Because at the end, the end story, what we read about, what we know, what we believe, is that the end is there's no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and everything that was broken has now come together. So that's what we believe about the end. As a result of what we believe about the end, we are starting it now. And so how we act and how we be, behave and all the decisions we make are, are contingent upon that belief. But the idea of inaugurated eschatology, and I was reminded of like Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus and uh, Paramount Plus and Peacock Plus. This is like inaugurated eschatology plus. It's not just the beginning of the end. It is to see clearly what the end is and to ensure that every decision that we make is informed by that decision. It is to say that, look, we're going to have to take some pathways. We're going to have to make some decisions here. It's a little crazy. It's a little ambiguous at times. Maybe there's like these three steps forward, two steps back moments. But we take a look at those two step back moments in history and contextualize it in the broader, grander scheme of things. There is an end that is happening. And this moment is okay. Because I can see the long game. I can see the end game. And when I suffer from a setback, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's not okay because nobody wants to suffer through that. But in the context of the greater end game, I can see how it's developing. Many of you know this intuitively already. When you later on, after some sort of tragedy or event or suffering or pain, you look back on that moment and you go, I can see how that led me here. I can see how that trial or that suffering or that difficulty gave me strength, resilience, new perspective, whatever it is, to get me to this particular point. So this is inaugurated eschatology plus. Not only has the end begun, not only is it beginning right now, but it informs everything along the way and contextualizes both the positives and the negatives and, and the shifts and the turns. And it's all based upon this one question, which Kendra, again, so brilliantly did. You prepare right now for the CCS final championship. Not just the playoffs, the final. Because that, my friends, is our end game. And when you do this, when you do this well, conscientiously, in your heart, in your soul, in your emotions, it changes everything. This is the root, the soil out of which hope and purpose emerge. I can see where we're going. I can see it. I know what it is. That's where we're headed. 
That's hope. Not optimism. Don't feign optimism. I feel good. I think, you know, I'm reminded of that. You have seen that meme with the dog and the fire? This is fine. <laughs> That's optimism. That's blind ignorance. Hope is I know what the end is, and everything here is going to be informed and contextualized by that, and that gives me a purpose and a reason for getting there. If you believe that heaven and earth are going to come together in a glorious unification, as we mentioned before, then you begin to recognize that the pains, what Paul talks about, the pains and the groanings, the birth pains, the things that are happening are all yearning for that glorious end. And if it is true that the world is not going to end in some sort of apocalyptic, cataclysmic destruction, as so often happens to be the teaching in a lot of religious circles, but rather is going to be a recreation of Genesis 1 and 2 in the glorious exaltation of who God is in the creation. If that is the reality, then I'm actually going to care for the creation. I'm going to take care to steward this well, what the biblical writers talk about serving and guarding that creation well. If you are raising children, this goes way back when we had Julie Lithcott Hames come and share on her book, Raising Adults. The title alone gives away the point. You are not raising children, you are raising adults. And when you start to identify that endgame, that gives you a completely different perspective and understanding of the steps along the way and can even change what it is that you want to do along the way. If your ultimate aim is to be recognized as Simulu, then you get a haircut. That's the end game. That's the whole point of doing that. That is why. No, there's an end game here. Yes? Yeah? Oh, well, thank you. Let's just close there. I feel so good. <laughs> it's really funny because a friend of ours, um, who we hadn't seen for a while, walked up to me and said, Simu! And I was just taken aback. And then I realized, and I was like, I'll own it. I'll take it. He, that, that's, a, that's a good looking man. Okay. Um, so, the question, <laughs> for those of you who wondered, uh, I, I did used to have long hair. I got it cut. And clearly that's the reason why. No. Um, so if that's the end game, the end game helps to contextualize and inform what it is that you're doing now. So what's Paul's end game? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Very simply put, when you take a look at the thrust and the logic behind Romans, you see creation language, you clearly see Christ language, and the language that Paul uses there weaves those two together. Say, listen, there is a God in heaven who created this earth who wanted to push forward God's image and likeness into this world. Israel was charged with that responsibility. But as a representative of Israel, Jesus ultimately does what Israel couldn't do. Why? Because there's fault. We're human. So Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, becomes the embodiment of the good God, the good creation in this world. That is the theological foundation. But if you look closely at the logic, the theological logic, he moves on to the next element, which is you, the church, the people of God, which takes a huge focus in this letter and says, if Jesus is essentially the embodiment, 
the embrace of God and God's story, then guess what you are, church? You are the embodiment and the exemplification on earth of who Jesus is, which, of course, is an exemplification of the creation story. This is the end game. He's writing to a, a group of people who are followers of Jesus. They're trying to figure some things out. And if you listen carefully to the thrust of the logic, this is what we're going for. You church, you're not here to make yourself feel good. You're not here because there's nice people, although there are very nice people here. You're not even here because there's problems in your life that you need fixing, although Hopefully that happens as a result of love and compassion and, and the justice work that happens. No, church, you are here to be the full embodiment and embrace of the grand narrative and story that God's been telling since the very beginning. Embodied, embodied in Jesus and as followers of Jesus, guess what? You now embody that very truth and reality. This is Paul's endgame. We talked a little bit about this back in 2015. We did a series entitled Incarnation. I would encourage you to go back, and I will just try to sum up as best as I can. We talked about that which is up is now down, that which is in is now out, that which it will be is actually now. What that means is we often think in religious terms of heaven being the ultimate reality, but in incarnation, heaven, that which is up there, the glorious cloud in the sky is actually down here. Incarnation brings what is up down. We often think that what Christianity and religion and faith is, is about, well, we've talked about this particular term, moralistic therapeutic deism, which is the idea that religion is to make me feel good, to solve all the problems, the emotional turmoil. Here, this is why I'm... Incarnation says, if you are attempting to fix, address, heal the emotional scars and wounds here, incarnation says... Now you do it here, between people, in relationships, in the world, in society. And that which will be is actually now. That's the future. That's the inaugurated eschatology. Someday at the end, it's going to be fixed. But actually, incarnation says, no, it's right here, right now. Let's get to work and fixing that. So that is, in many ways, the embodiment of the good news, the gospel that Paul is putting forth. That is the end game. And of course... There's a problem, and this is the problem. We should spend maybe the rest of our lives, as Danielle mentioned, how many times do you think about Rome every day, apparently? It's so crazy, because I got, Debbie texted me that question, how many times, Andrew wants to know, how many times does Kevin think about Rome? And I was like, what, a, what an odd question. And you, you already know, we're not on social media, I have no idea this is a meme, so I go, well, it's funny you say that. So I texted her back the five books on Rome that I'm reading, and she just laughed at me. Anyway, <laughs> this is a problem. And the more you dig into the context of Rome and what they did and, and Claudius's exile of the Jews and the empire, the social stratification, the haves and the have-nots, the privileged and the empowered in this particular society, you start to realize that if you live in a society that you're surrounded by these kind of cultural elements, it is really hard to live out that vision, this vision that Paul and the entire scriptures are pushing us for. This is really hard to do when you live here. By the way, it's also really hard to do when you live in Silicon Valley. There are cultural pressures. 
economic pressures, political pressures that make that vision really, really hard. And so, as a result, Paul writes a letter to help them get there. That's the end game. Unification, the church, the embodiment. Here's where you are. And he writes the letter. And one of the ways to understand what are we striving for is not just to read the beginning of the letter, but to read the end. And most scholars would agree that starting at chapter 14, we are coming to the closing arguments. And so what I'd like to do is very, very quickly go over just a few pieces. There's no way we can cover it all. But just a few highlights as to what the closing arguments are saying. Because if we can see what the end game is for Paul, we'll be, be, we'll be able to better understand why is he talking about the weak and the strong? Why is he talking about food sacrifice to idols? Why is he talking about natural and unnatural relations? We often argue about all those things because we haven't figured out what the end game is. And here's the end game. We've already talked a little bit about this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cantrea. So you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Notice these titles. Phoebe is a phenomenal person that you need to know in this letter because she gets three main titles, main identifiers. The first is this word sister. We, the idea of separate peoples, like all of you, you did not all come from the same quote-unquote family. But if you are in Christ, according to Paul's logic, you are brothers and sisters, which is the preeminent metaphor for what it means to become the church. Previously, all of you, you were the CEO, the CFO, the chief, whatever, of your job. You were the head honcho here. You were the masters of this and the doctor of this. But in here, in this community, you are a brother and a sister. The hierarchy does not exist. That's going to be a big theme in this letter. So, Ken, number two, she holds an office. We've already talked a little bit about this extensively. We won't belabor the point, but that a Greek woman would be named to a particular office within the church is a subversion of the natural order of things. And then number three, she is a benefactor. She's wealthy. She's rich. Yes, Christianity is a religion of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. That is true. But we are also a religion of the wealthy, those who have a lot, those who are well-to-do. And Phoebe is one of those, and others as well. The issue is not what you have or what you don't have. The issue is, are you recognizing that you are brothers and sisters here? In addition to this, Phoebe gets a couple other uh, responsibilities. Danielle mentioned this last week. This is a little bit of review. She becomes the first interpreter. She is the carrier of the, of the letter. Therefore, she is an authorized teacher. This is one of the arguments that a lot of people make. There's, all, there's still, still to this day, discussions and arguments as to what sex, male or female, belongs in what positions of power and authority. One of the questions that you ask is, do you have evidence of women in positions of spiritual, theological authority over other men? Phoebe is one of them. She is an authorized teacher, and she is most likely mentored by Paul and sent by Paul, which makes her an apostle in that particular category. These are elements of the end game. A person who does not belong in these positions, 
and does not deserve these levels of responsibility is given all of those and is recognized as such. This goes on and on. Prisca and Aquila, co-workers, who risked their necks for my life. And, by the way, they also are church planners. They are in ministry leadership. This prominence piece, notice whose name is first. When you are ordering names, when referring to the person whose name is first listed is the one who has prominence. If you want to come over to our house, whose house do you come over to? Phoebe's. <laughs> yes, that, that is, man, that is true in more ways than one. Um, you, you always come over to Danielle and Kevin's house. You, you can glean from that the prominence of the position of the household as a result of that. Now, that does not demean, does it? Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't demean the second person. It just, who's taking charge, who has the responsibility, who has that particular position. This goes on. Beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert in Asia, the first convert. There's much we could explore here, but why would you mention the first convert? Well, there's a lot about the firstborn and primogenitor in the Old Testament. There's a lot of themes here that are being uh, alluded to in this. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you, Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Israelites, who were in prison, in prison? with me, prominent among the apostles. So we have Andronicus and Junia also named apostles. They were in Christ before I was. So they, they have this kind of preeminence. And it just goes on. Uh, Ampliatus, my beloved, Urbanus, a co-worker, my, my beloved, Ampelus, the family of Aristobulus, Herodian, the family of Narcissus, greet those, uh, Tryphena, Tryphena, it just goes on and on and on. And he lists a whole bunch of people there that are to be greeted with... A holy kiss. Now, this has been one of my favorite verses for junior hires <laughs> and high schoolers who are like, yeah, but it's biblical. <laughs> um, what we don't understand is that the cultural context would suggest that when you greet one another, and here's the free key phrase, holy, you are greeting other people as if they were your equal. There is something about this particular greeting you don't bow to them. You don't prostrate yourself as you would with the emperor. You greet them with a holy kiss. There is a reciprocation of equality there. This is a greeting for kin, for family beloved. So in that entire list of people in all sorts of different social orders, some wealthy, some not wealthy, some Greek, some Latin, some Roman, some Jewish, you are all one family. That is who you are. You to are to greet one another in this particular way because you are the family. That's the end game. So when you read about all those other things, just keep that in mind. That's where he's going. That's, that's the idea. If you walk into Spark or into any other church with status and privilege as your predominant identity, you're doing it wrong. Nobody comes here and flaunts their wealth, their position, their class, or their social order. That's not what the church is. In here, we're family, brothers and sisters. That's the end game. That'll help us. Now, to, to drive that point home, <laughs> this is so great. 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, there it is again, to keep an eye on those who create dissensions and hindrances in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them, for such people do not serve the Lord, do not serve the Lord Christ, but in but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded, for your obedience is known to all. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace, that's a key phrase, will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The ending argument is that I want you to be wise about this because the evil is the disintegration of peace, the disintegration of that which brings us together. And the ultimate vision, the God of peace, which is, and we don't have time to spend on this, a complete affront to the Roman peace. Anybody heard of the Pax Romana? Yes, this is what he's doing. Now, I have to do this because my wife told me to. This is a kickback. If you want to know something that really moves you, this is, this is it right here. Let's sing the word of God. It says, Romans, Romans, 16, 19, says, Romans, 16, 19, says, Be excellent at what is good. Be innocent. This is the best part. Get your feet ready. Everybody's got to do the stomp. Okay. I sang that song, I don't know how many times I've let it from guitar to piano. And we get the entire room up and stop it. Now, you have the verse memorized? Yeah, no, you don't, because it's not Romans 16, 19, it's Romans 16, 19, and 20. So we added Romans 16, 19, and 20 says. So anyway, just a little bit note there. Romans 16, 19 essentially is this preeminent argument that the God of peace, not the Roman peace, the God of peace, the shalom, the one that brings it all together, is going to soon crush Satan underneath it. What does that sound like to you, for those of you who know Genesis? What is it? The serpent. There's a creator and a creation. There's a Jesus who embodies that creation and crushes the serpent on the cross. You, my friends, now get to embody that same defeat. And that God is going to crush that serpent who has separated you, divided you under your feet. That's the end game. That's the end game. The divisions, the dissensions, the arguments, the things that tear us apart, the things that make us hate one another, the things that make us gossip about one another, the things that make us uh, compare one another, who is better, who is not better, all of those things are from Satan, the devil, the dissenters, the things that are completely against this gospel, this message where in the garden we are (laughs) naked and unashamed. We are free to be completely who we are because we're all, and now here's mixing of metaphors, 
brothers and sisters. In his book, Reading Romans Backwards, Scott McKnight argues this very kind of idea and says maybe we should start with the end and then read all the way through. He would sum it up as saying, from the beginning to the end of this letter, or from end to beginning, the letter deconstructs privilege and power and replaces them with peace. That, my friends, is the conclusion and the end game for which we are all striving. And that is going to help us understand how Paul, how and why Paul says the things that he does. In this context, the peace of Rome is what establishes order. And again, we don't have time, go back and study the hierarchies, the, the stratifications, the classism, the sexism, the warring, the battles. Uh, there's a series right now on Netflix. <laughs> Can I get some endorsement? Any endorsement from Netflix employees? Anyway, there's a series on Netflix on the Roman Empire to talk about Tiberius and Caligula and Claudius and Nero and how they governed. It was, again, the only reason why they had peace is because they killed everybody who didn't want peace. And what comes along in this particular letter and what follows as a result of these early Christians actually doing what Paul argues is an establishing of a completely different kind of peace. And this symbol emerges within the Christian, uh, Christian culture, within early Christianity to describe this peace. This is known now as the Pax Mundi, the peace of the world. That symbol, uh, if you search the Pax or, or the peace of the world, you'll, you'll find this particular symbol. But what are these symbols? For those of you who know, that's not an X and that's not a P. These are Greek letters, chi and rho. And they are the first two letters of Christ. The Pax Mundi, the peace of the world, comes through Christ. And this, my friends, is going to be the way in which we understand where the heck are you going, Paul? Why are you talking about exchanging natural relations with unnatural ones? What are you talking about when you say the weak and the strong? You telling me to honor the authorities? Those people are corrupt. No one is righteous? I mean, like, wait, wait, are you saying that there's no such thing as righteousness? I thought the entire time we were supposed to be righteous people. Uh, why are you talking about Abraham and Adam now? I don't want to go all the way back there. I thought that was the Old Testament. Uh, I do not do what I want to do. The things that I do, I do not want to do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Why, why are you having an existential crisis in the middle of chapter 7? Go find a good therapist, for crying out loud. Uh, the election of Israel. I mean, like, can we stop talking about the chosen people, for crying out loud? Food sacrifice. I don't sacrifice food to idols. I go to Costco. Why, <laughs> why is he talking about all of these things? My friends, there's an end game. The end game is I got to get you through all of these culturally relevant pieces that you are struggling with to get you here. And the end game is the peace of Christ. That's the end game. That's where we're going. That's the end. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Yes, God will crush him underneath your feet. Thank you. Very, thank you. Some class participation. I'd like to expand this maybe just a little bit more and ask for you to consider how you can think about what is your end game. This was, this was clearly important and clearly uh, viable when it comes to soccer, but it is also viable for asking the question whenever you wake up in the morning. 
What is the end game there? Asking yourself how you get up in the morning and what you do, what am I to accomplish? What's the vision for my life? The end game is also incredibly important and really powerful for when you ask the question, how do I get through suffering and pain and tragedy? The end game is so critical, so critical when it comes to justice work. I have a sense that much of the misunderstanding of critical race theory, of racial justice, of all the things that we're dealing with in our culture is is a result of not understanding that there's an end game that we are trying to get to, which is why you take these little steps. And it doesn't make sense in the moment and contextualize in just this very minutiae kind of a particular way. It's like, it feels like the opposite thing. But sometimes you got to get through those elements because you're trying to get to the end game. Same thing with climate and the same thing with church. We have to understand what the end game is. And if you want to come and participate, then you come and participate with the hope and the goal of getting to that end game. I saw this, uh, my family and I went to the Exploratorium recently, and it was just a really beautiful expression of uh, some time, and I saw this image here. Many of you who have been in justice work know about this picture. Uh, There's different labels that you can put to that. Um, But then I looked at the website underneath, and that website, uh, the illustration for the Center for Story-Based Strategy and Interaction Institute for Social Change, that's the website, and I can give that to you if you're interested added that fourth panel there. It's something that I haven't seen before. But on their original website, it looks like this. Equity, or equality, equity, liberation. And then it has this blank space, your idea here. And the question that's on the website is this. What do you want to foreshadow? How do you imagine the fourth box? How do you imagine it? Brilliant. Sure, we got to fix some things for equality, equity, and maybe even liberation. But the question is, what does the next box look like? And if you can identify what that looks like, that will help and inform backwards what it is that we're doing here and why that's important. Kendra did a really brilliant thing. She started the season with the CCS championship schedule, including the final game, and told all of her players at that particular moment, you must block out this date, because that's the end game. Three minutes in, Danielle Allen scores, and then the unthinkable happened. At the handball, and no call from the officials. It's over! The final whistle is blown, and the Kings Academy Knights are your Central Coast Section Division III girls soccer champions. The number 13 seeded team in the bracket goes all the way through, upsets the entire way, and Kings Academy and Coach Kendra Randolph are your CCS Division III girls soccer champions. What a season, what a way to finish it for the Knights.
And what a great story. The 13-seeded team wins the championship. You talk about being underdogs. They were placed in the toughest bracket, in the toughest position to get through the bracket, and they managed to go ahead and knock off the top-seeded teams in the entire bracket. Amazing. They are. My friends, start with the end in mind. Vision. The end game for him is that all of us, no matter where you are in status and position, no matter where you come from and out there, no matter what the culture says is your value or your worth, no matter how much money you have or do not have, no matter how popular or unpopular you are, no matter how much some people say you can't because of a particular identity issue, in this space, the conclusion is all brothers and sisters. Every single one of us. That's the end game. That's where we're going. And if we understand that end game, we can understand how and why everything else that Paul does in the letter leads to that. I invite us to, to read the commitment together, which is in and of itself, once again, a symbolic representation of the end game. We say every single week that all are welcome at this table. It is a way of describing your position, power, your stature, none of that matters here. We don't care. And as Danielle has said multiple times, it's not our table. So come. Because in here, your family, brothers and sisters, one in Christ. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it. Thank you. 